Good. I'm asking for your attention tonight for some thoughts on um, what I believe a slightly naughty and not very straightforward topic. I'd like to speak about the Idipadas tonight, uh, uh, qualities ascribed to realized practitioners and generally translated as basis for spiritual power or um, as I would like to translate them as the roads to empowerment. This is a somewhat enigmatic teaching. Re you remember Idis in Indian tradition or Siddhis play a huge role. Uh, these are often referred to as supernatural faculties either um, because of the charisma of a practitioner or because of his or her strenuous practice. Uh, in Buddhist tradition, generally they are ascribed to being the results of uh, profound states of samadhi. Some of these idis are particularly praised. Uh, one of them is called even the noble idi, the noble power. And these idis uh, are not very easily accessible, neither their description nor their uh, actual experience seems to be a mundane and everyday thing. Just to give you some example what is meant by those idis, let me get my glasses on. So, these idis, when the four bases of spiritual power, these are our idipadas, have been developed and cultivated in this way, the practitioner wields the various kinds of spiritual power. Having been one, he becomes many. Having been many, he becomes one. He appears and vanishes. He goes unhindered through a wall, through a rampart, through a mountain, as, as through space. As though through space. He dives in and out of the earth as though it were water. He walks on water without sinking as though it were earth. Seated cross-legged. He travels in space like a bird. With his hand, he touches and strokes the moon and the sun so powerful and mighty. He exercises mastery with the body as far as the Brahma world. This is not the end. There is more. When the four bases for spiritual power have been developed and cultivated in this, in this way, monks with divine ear element, which is purified and surpasses the human, hears both kinds of sounds, the divine and human, those that are far as well as near. When they are developed and cultivated in this way, he understands the minds of other beings and persons, having encompassed them with his own mind. He understands a mind with lust as a mind with lust. A mind with lust a mind without lust as a mind without lust. A mind with hatred as a mind with hatred. Without hatred as a mind without hatred. A mind with delusion as with delusion. Without delusion as a mind without delusion. A concentrated mind, a contracted mind, a distracted mind as concentrated, contracted or distracted. An exalted mind as exalted, an unexalted mind as unexalted. Surpassable mind as surpassable, an unsurpassable mind as unsurpassable. A concentrated mind is concentrated, and an unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. A liberated mind is liberated, and an unliberated mind is unliberated. Still, we're still going. When the four bases of spiritual power have been developed and cultivated in this way, a bhikkhu recollects his manifold past abodes, that is, one birth, two birth, three birth, four birth, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, hundred, a thousand birth, 
and a hundred thousand births. Many eons of world contraction, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction and expansion thus. There I was, so-and-so named, of such-and-such such a clan, with such-and-such such an appearance. Such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life lifespan. Passing away from there, I was reborn elsewhere, and there too I was so named, of such-and-such such a clan, and so forth. Thus he recollects his manifold past abodes, and with their modes and details. When the four bases of spiritual power have been developed and cultivated in this way, the practitioner with divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, sees beings passing away and being reborn. Inferior, superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, he understands how beings fare in accordance with their kamma thus. These beings who engaged in misconduct of body, speech and mind, who reviled the noble ones, held wrong view and undertook actions based on wrong view, with the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in a state of misery, in a bad destination, in a netherworld, in hell. But these beings who go in good conduct of body, speech and mind, who did not revile the noble ones, who held right view and undertook actions based on right view with the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Thus, with divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, he sees beings passing away and being reborn, and so forth. And then finally, this is the culmination. I hope you're still with me. This is an important one. This is the only one which gets us out, basically. Yeah? So this is the one I've been working up towards. Yeah? With the four bases of spiritual power, he, when they have been developed and cultivated in this way, a bhikkhu, by the destruction of the intoxicants in this very life, enters and dwells in the liberation free from intoxicants, the liberation of mind and the liberation of wisdom, realizing it for himself with direct knowledge. Yeah? This is the asavakaya, jnana. This is the only necessary supernormal power for liberation amongst the many supernormal powers here enumerated. Uh, and some of them sound quite attractive. Yeah? Stroking sun and moon must be quite... A, sitting cross-legged, traveling through space. That would make my jet lag problems a lot easier. Yeah. So the only one really here directly connected with liberation is that very last one, Asavakaya Jnana. So as you read this, you realize this doesn't really appeal very much to a rational Western mind. Yeah, while it may be exotic, uh, diving into the earth as if in water and walking through walls and doing teleportation and all the things you might have liked doing as a kid, um, I would suspect that very few of us find their inspiration and their motivation to meditate in the possibility of acquiring these powers. However, there they are. Um, mentioned quite a few times in various parts and it is interesting that there is a tension in the Buddhist texts. In Buddhist teaching, there is a tension in the relationship to these supernormal powers. On one hand, the Buddha seems to be down on supernormal powers. When his monks display supernormal powers, he reviles them. You know? One guy who was winning a contest and got a, a, a golden utensil down from a flagpole 
uh, by flying up there and getting it down and giving it to a little girl to please her, uh, make her win the contest. Um, when things kind of came into the open, because the girl obviously, because she was poor and uh, was felt that she might have stolen that utensil, uh, uh, then said how she came to that utensil. It was, I think, a plate, if I recall properly. And um, it turned out that which monk that was and uh, what he did. And rather than the Buddha praising this monk, saying, well, this is a really nice gesture to make that small poor girl happy uh, and give her that golden thing and make her win the contest, the Buddha said, look, you displaying your supernormal powers in public is no different from a prostitute displaying her genitals in public. So there were several other occasions when, um, when members of the order were displaying supernormal powers and uh, that was reviled, that was criticized. But then there are other passages where it is said that Dabba Damala, um, who was an arahant by the age of seven and who had mastered the fire element, in fact, when he died, if you bother to read this up in the Udana, he uh, died rose up into sky and self-combusted. That was his end as a complete arahant. And during his lifetime, he was um, the guest monk. And monks said they would arrive intentionally late. So Dabba the Mala would light up his index finger at night and show them the way. Yeah? So you have th many, many little uh, indications that there's a deep fascination with supernormal power. Throughout the texts, you have a clear sense that, okay, this is not to be displayed, this is not for showing off, and yet this was clearly felt to be validating spiritual practice. It was clearly felt to be profoundly convincing of somebody's achievements, somebody's realization, if he or she was capable of this. And this tension goes throughout the texts. So, Years ago, I was sitting in my hut in Thailand and reading through the Idipada Samyutta, uh, hoping to get some more clarity on these Idipadas, these uh, roads to spiritual power or these um, four forms of empowerment. Let me just enumerate them. This uh, is a, it's a long and unwieldy uh, Pali concept, um, and it has most of it stays the same and some of it changes. In English, uh, my preferred translation would be the empowerment um, won by ardency, perseverance, and concentration of desire. The empowerment won by ardency, perseverance, and concentration of energy. The empowerment won by ardency, perseverance, and conservation of concentration of mind. The empowerment won by ardency, perseverance, and concentration of discernment. The Pali is Chanda, Samadhi, Padhana, Sankara, Samanagata, so endowed with uh, Samanagata, the power or the striving coming from concentration and coming from uh, ardency connected with desire, the power coming from ardency, concentration and striving connected with energy, the power coming from ardency connected with striving and concentration of mind, the power coming from ardency, perseverance, 
and connected with discrimination or with discernment. The Pali words are chanda, arvirya, chitta, and arvimangsa. And the compound makes it very clear that these are formations of will. So will is in there. Then there is in there samadhi in all four forms. So collectedness, as in being put together, you know, samadaha, to be put together. And the, uh, then the change, you know, the first one, either will or desire, chanda, the second one, virya, energy both of body but also mental energy, uh, citta, here clearly in the, perp or in the sense of speaking of a collectedness of mind, and finally vimangsa, uh, a verb that uh, vimangsati coming from the root of man to think, to engage cognitively with something, to uh, discern, to uh, investigate. And then if you have these kind of, you have these turns, if you break that a little bit down, okay, we are speaking of a type of realization that comes about through four slightly different forms of things that have to do with effort, that have to do with collectedness, and that have to do with a degree of ardency. Yeah. And then you kind of take it a little further and you see these four types of effort, we have to understand this as being part of emancipatory effort of samavayama. You know, the term padhana, which is often termed, uh, translated as fight. Yeah? You may recall that from the four right forms of fighting or the four right efforts. Yeah? The effort to bring about what isn't here, the efforts to sustain what is good and is here, the effort to avoid what is bad and is not here, and the effort to uh, bring to the end what is bad and what is already here. Yeah? You recognize those. And that term padhana in there speaks of a, a powerful application of our, of our faculties. Yeah. Stuff we generally have some difficulties with. Either we don't want to do this, we just want to bask in open awareness and hope everything develops naturally, or we're obsessed with it. Yeah? Everything has to be worked and sweated for. Yeah? Unless I'm really suffering, it's nothing worth. Yeah. The stuff, the good stuff, all is hard won. The good stuff is all hard work. If it doesn't hurt, it means I'm not doing it well enough. Yeah? So there's the other opposite. Yeah? Um, you can decide in which camp you are. You probably know in which camp you are. So some of us try to not do that effort, and some of us try to overdo that effort. And here we are told that effort has four differing kind of emphasis, four differing accents. Now let's try to look at these accents a little more clear. Um, there is if you take these idipadas, these types of effort, um, if you disconnect them from all these supernatural powers here are listed up, you will probably agree with me that um, these four efforts 
are necessary for any secular undertaking, anything that you have brought to success in your life, you are very likely to have uh, had and to have applied and trained in these differing four forms of effort. The first one, Chanda Samadhi Padana Sankara Samanagata, the first one basically means I am capable of focusing my intent. I am capable of focusing on a, a wish, on a vision, on a desire. Yeah. Without wish, vision or desire, nothing really moves. Desire has a lot of bad press in Buddhism. Uh, you're highly aware of this. But it is also acknowledged that without desire, nothing really moves. Yeah? We're just not getting out of our beds without desire. We don't really engage. We're not willing to let go of things. We're not willing to um, move when things are difficult. Yeah? There is a clear acknowledgement that forms of desire are needed. Now, desire is a tiger, and we have to ride that tiger. And once we have some kind of tiger to ride, we need to make sure that that this tiger goes in the direction of wholesomeness. But you can't just wait there without the tiger and hopeful, hope the whole wholesomeness will start to appear without you connecting with the energy of desire. Yeah. So the first task is to actually get some energy going. The second task is to make sure that this energy goes in the right direction. But without the energy, even if you know the right direction, you're just not moving. It's just not happening. Yeah. So let's acknowledge that forms of desire Forms of interest, forms of intent, forms of aspiration are all needed. Buddhism distinguishes lots of desires. The term chanda, interestingly, occurs in both positive context and in negative context. It is considered wholesome when it is connected with the Dhamma, as in Dhamma chanda. It is connected unwholesome when it is connected, say, with sensuality, karma chanda. So here we are not told whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. What we are told is it is needed. So consider any, anything you have started in your life, anything you have begun will have needed some form of vision, something that said, wouldn't it be nice if, couldn't we make it somehow possible that, can't we just try this? Yeah. So we, any success, anything successful in our life will have had the moment when suddenly an, an idea arose, when suddenly a kind of a vision emerged in your head and something that wasn't there became the focus of your intention, became the focus of your interest, became the focus of your keenness. Yeah. The second one is an interesting stage because we know Intentions are not really enough for things to move. We, some, of, some of us know that very well. We can have intentions for a lifelong without actually anything happening. Yeah? They just remain noble and inspiring intentions, but somehow they never quite translate into action. They never quite get galvanized into decision and the firmness of a, um, a determination that comes out of that intention. I have intentions that I haven't put into action for a long time. I don't know how it is with your intentions, but some intentions just somehow never, 
never you know, go to the place where the rubber meets the road. Um, that's the moment where virya kicks in. That's the moment where this second um, idipada kicks in. The magic moment when a noble intention is galvanized into a decision. While intentions are fluid and changeable, uh, the second one suddenly becomes solid and says, wow, this is it. This is what we're going to do. And we're willing to pay the price. We're willing to put in effort. We're willing to give up things for that one. Now we're going. Now it's moving. Now we're in it. So suddenly we're in a process that has come from an idea, an interest, an intention into an actual will, a volitional activity. Yeah, we have decided and we have started moving out of the blocks. That's virya. Virya is, the word comes from the old, uh, the old term for hero in days when uh, heroes used to, were st it was still politically correct to refer to heroes as male um, and as kind of doing sort of manly, heroic, soldierly things, you know. So they were kind of loyal. They would be kind of make sacrifices. They would not expect immediate gratification. They were willing to put in effort in service of something. And they were willing to get beaten for it. They were willing to meet resistance. They were willing to meet difficulty and soldier on. So that's an aspect of Virya. Um, this is a type of... Um, Manliness that is not exclusive to men, just to be clear. I, uh, this is a power that uh, is quite often held and uh, incorporated or embodied by women. Just to think of somebody like uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, for example, huh? who's been holding, uh, holding out in her years of uh, incarceration, uh, being faced with a whole outfit of male military folk and it was this wonderful soldiering on of this woman who has made tremendous sacrifices to hang in there and look where she is now so just to be clear the heroic energizing part is a power that does not have to prove anything but it is a power that is willing to engage willing to sacrifice willing to forsake gratification, that is loyal to a goal, and that is profoundly energized. Yeah. That is probably something your business or your project will have needed at some stage. The noble intention didn't got you going. It didn't got you past the pioneering stage. You will have needed some hard work and maybe not immediate success, maybe criticism, maybe Things haven't worked out right in the first attempt. So, virya very clearly will be part of anything we do. If we do not have that power to harness our energies, to risk something, to in invest these energies vital vitally and mentally into something, we will always stay with a nice idea, with a nice intention, who never gets translated into action. Now, once we're out of the pioneering stage, once we have started moving, we don't need that pioneering energy anymore. 
we need a different kind of energy. That's where citta comes in. That's where the third of these idipadas comes in. Citta is the capacity to administrate. It's the capacity to measure degrees of need and degrees of economy. Citta is an administrator. Citta is capable of making small moves at the center and the periphery adjusts accordingly. Yeah? You don't need pioneering, soldiering at that stage. You need a careful balance. You need um, the quality of, say, balancing the faculties, for example. Yeah? Balancing uh, faith and wisdom, balancing mindfulness, balancing effort and balancing uh, stillness. That would be one way we could understand citta in terms of the five indriyas, in terms of the five spiritual faculties. Once the car is moving, you don't need that thrust anymore. What you need is circumspect and careful management of the energies. Where does it lack? Where does it need a little bit of investment? Where do we have too much? Where, how can we run that? If you think of an institution, if you think of a place, a university or a business, or a meditation center. You know, the pioneering spirit basically is needed to get things going, to take the risks, to just dare doing something you don't quite know how it works. Ten years later, you need a different type of energy. You need a different type of administration. You need a different type of setup. That's where citta comes in. That means the capacity to sustain an effort. Any effort, even running a hundred yards, is basically a mental effort. If you've ever climbed a mountain, if you've ever done a job that is just going beyond your initial inspiration, you will know anything of that nature will need the capacity to mentally hold collectedness, to mentally not dissipate energies, not overdo it, to be on the lookout where things are flagging, where things need attention where things need fixing and where they're perfectly all right, where you don't need to fiddle with the screws. So this is a very different type of energy and effort. And the idipada concerned with the empowerment won by ardency, perseverance, um, concentration of mind, this is what gets us going. This is what makes things sustainable. This is what safeguards the longevity of our uh, initial vision, the longevity of our power that we man manage to apply. We learn how much needs to be self-nourishing, we learn how, where we can invest, and we learn where we need to bring in energy. The fourth one, it's interesting. Fourth one is, um, Vimangsa is a specific kind of troubleshooter. Vimangsa is a sort of reorientation. When things are going a couple of years in, suddenly you raise your head and you find, okay, this is what we wanted. This is what we did. This is what has happened. How far off are we from what we have wanted? Yeah. Does that remind you of your life? I hope it does. Yeah? You start off something you continue, you succeed to some degree, and then you need to reorient. That is Vimangsa. You need to reorient and see, okay, did we get where we wanted to go? Have we changed our goals in the meantime? Do we need to rebalance? Do we need to redirect our efforts? You know, 
we got that business going, we got that center going, we got that university running, do we need to expand? Do we need, are we hemorrhaging somewhere? Do we need to fix something? Do we need to bring in something which we don't know yet? What is lacking? Have we actually moved towards the intended goal? So, Vimangsa is, um, you know, has many faces. Vimangsa is the kind of, is the outside coach who comes in and looks. It's, it's the outside accountant who looks at the flow of money. It's the, it's, it's the IT specialist who looks at our information flow. It's the troubleshooter who comes and sorts out our quarreling team. Yeah? So, Vimangsa does this kind of assessment in terms of our big picture freedom in this case, liberation. Where are we? What is needed now? Okay, we can meditate, we know what mindfulness is, we know how to still the mind, we go on retreat, we, we have learned something about Brahma Viharas and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, we have identified habits and patterns, we've identified skills and we've learned some things, but maybe something needs addressing in a bigger way. Maybe something needs a revisioning of our original attempt. Yeah. Usually that goes again together with some pain. Yeah. This isn't easy. Revisioning is not easy. Uh, usually we do that when we get sick or depressed or when we get sacked or when, we, uh, when something crashes. We kind of revision our original plans and we, we see, yeah, basic intention was good. It was needed, basic direction was good, but I'm not, I'm not going to go anymore in that direction. I need a different direction now. I just need fine-tuning in a bigger way. Because I'm not actually who I thought I was, or I'm not actually lacking what I thought I was lacking. That was my mother. <laughs> so I found out it's not me. <laughs> yeah. it's, I've learned a lot, but thank you very much. I'm not trying to fix a problem I don't have somebody else has had and I have just taken it on. I'm actually now learning something else, something that I have learned and found out about myself. Or we're running our center, but with a new emphasis. Yeah? We focus on something or we expand to something. This revisioning is crucial. Any big corporation, any venture in your own life, any project, if you're still trying to do the same thing as, as you're trying to do when you're 20, Something's wrong, you know, because most of you are no longer 20, forgive me for saying so. Um, and if you still operate on the same premises, then something is probably not very good. You know? Then you're probably not doing justice to some of the things you have learned along the way. Maybe your vision was good, but some of the self-construct that you've started off from is probably not applicable anymore, or needs at least a little update. A Kinjin or two zero, maybe, or something like that, or Susie two zero, or whatever you, you know, fill in the blank there. So I was sitting in my Thai hut, pondering these idipadas, and realized that these idipadas are not just for flying in the air. They are not just for asavakayanyana, although that is definitely the most attractive one, the uh, liberation, the dissolution of the intoxicants that uh, keep us in the game. Uh, these four forms of learning to harness energy and to apply ourselves, these are connected with any 
undertaking in my life. Yeah. And it just so happened, I was flicking through a couple of non-canonical early Buddhist books, and one of them was speaking of, uh, in a very interesting way, of the Jungian archetypes. Yeah? And some of you may know yeah? Jungian archetypes. Jung was not very good on those archetypes. He had a very great idea, but then he never quite followed through on this one. So some of his successes actually did a lot better job at disentangling these archetypes a little bit. And some, so there, is some very, there are various models, but one simple model is you have the archetype of the lover who makes connection, who establishes value. Then you have the archetype of the warrior who uh, does pretty much what Virya does. Then you have the archetype of the king uh, who is trying to establish cosmos, to create order from chaos. And then you have the archetype of the magus, who comes in and tries to understand specific dynamics. And it somehow dawned on me that there is a profound connection between these idipadas and those archetypes. There's a profound connection there. Um, the first one is the one who establishes connection. He connects his interest, he connects desire with something worth that desire. He connects with the value. The second one is capable of translating that interest, that desire, with specific, concrete, and particular activity. A full-bodied engagement. Yeah. The third one is capable of suddenly establishing the big picture. Yeah. He's not just interested with this part group or that group of people, with his courtiers or with his particular, the refinement of his, of his uh, a treasure ch chamber, but he is interest, interested and committed to looking after his whole realm, yeah, his whole dominion. If he's a good king, he has to look after his whole realm. And he has to make choices where to put more energy, where to put more investment, where to give more of his time, where to back off, yeah, where to allow things to take, fall into place, and where to establish structure and maybe order or discipline or supervision, or things like that. So the, the king takes care of the whole place. Yeah? And then he needs a magus. He needs some guy who is really good at problem solving. Or he needs a guy who needs to know how economics, economy works. Or he needs a guy who knows how well digging works. Or he needs a guy who knows how to solve, or fix, or address a particular issue that, that comes up. Yeah? How to how to quell a rebellion. You not just need soldiers, you need to know why this has happened. You need to know what these people really want. You need to know how to make peace with people who seem to disagree with you. So these are all very specific skills. And for that you need a magus. You know, translate that into feminine. You know, there is uh, plenty of feminine warriors, there is plenty of feminine lovers, there is plenty of queens, and there is plenty of female magi. Yeah, the history is full. I'm a man, so I've, that was the bit which was talking to me first. And suddenly, I saw these parallels. This is a kind of universal pattern here. These are four very differing types of harnessing energy, of bringing about energy. Now, it also became obvious that these things need each other. Yeah. It was more obvious to me in terms of the archetypes. If I was... If you have a... You know, the guy who has the vision without the other three guys is just a dreamer, you know. He's just a fan fantasizing dreamer. He just keeps having dreams. Lovely dreams, beautiful dreams, 
enchanting dreams. And then he keeps having dreams and other dreams, and none of them becomes real. He just keeps dreaming on. And the second guy, you know, our warrior, uh, he's just a killer, you know, without the service, without putting himself into the service of, a, of some bigger cause, without loyalty. He's just a rogue, a rogue soldier. He's just a Ronin. He's just, a, you know, if you, if you want a Japanese word for that sort of dissociated samurai who is no longer somebody's servant who is no longer looking for a bigger cause, who is just, just a rogue killer running around, fending for his, uh, for his food. So uh, the last thing you want is this kind of warrior energy disconnected from responsibility, disconnected from value, disconnected from somebody who understands where this needs applying and where not. A king if he's devoid of a visionary, if he's devoid of a warrior, if he's devoid of his megas, a king is just a little bourgeois who looks after his little cabbage patch and looks after his nice little living room and you know decorates his little world. You know, he's just little bourgeois, has no big vision, has no empire, just kind of looks for his own comfy zone, just optimizes his comfort zone, basically. That's what a king does without the other three guys. Amagus, without the other guys, is just a cynical intellectual. He knows things, but he doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't hold values. He's just one of these useless, cynical intellectuals who know everything and can't change anything. Now, we have plenty of those. I'm sure you know what I'm talking of. So, these four guys, they bitterly need each other. You know? The power of these idipadas comes about through distribution through careful measuring, through uh, developing all of it, and through mutual appreciation. So the energy of desire, the energy of uh, power, getting power, mustard, the energy of collectedness, the energy of investigation and orientation, discernment. These are energies which need, they're all needed for anything we want to do. Even if you just want to weed your garden, you will need those four guys. Now, the interesting thing is, what are you doing in your life? You know, you, if you look at your own life, if you look at the roles you play in your life, where do you default to? If you happen to look at these four domains, the guy who holds the vision, the guy who gets things done, the guy who does the administration, and the guy who does the troubleshooting, in which particular area do you happen to be most of your time? Where do you default to? Are you holding other people's ideas? Are you the guy who gets other people's ideas and puts them into practice and finally runs with them? Are you the guy who, when the thing is actually moving, does the fine-tuning and the administrating of it? Or are you coming in, you know, with the, with the toolbox and repairing heating systems, computer systems, uh, quarreling teams, right? you know, this would be the, the kind of the magus guy. Where, where do you spend most of your energies on? In which of these domains? That's an interesting question. What do you have made a job out, out of in your life? Which role do you play in your family system amongst your friends? You know? If you visit all your friends, in, in all your friends' households, you seem to be repairing computers, you know, 
obviously this is something to do with the offers you make. It is something to do with uh, you favoring that expert role which comes in and fixes things. You know, you develop respect or you develop skills that make you appreciate it in this particular way. If you're the guy who listens to everybody's problems and advises them on their marriages and on their economies and on their job search, you know, you're basically more of a king type. Yeah? If you're the one who gets them going to clean out the garage or to finally tidy up the tool shed or to get the garden dug up, you know, then you're probably coming in on the warrior. The one who gets them out and makes them sure that they play their tennis or they do their squash or they go jogging or something, then you're probably coming in on the warrior. If you're more the guy who gives them new ideas and kind of get them into a sort of visioning space, you know, the one they consult for your, for your inspiration, then you're probably coming in more on the, the vision or the chanda space, you know, the desire space or the, the lover space. Use these uh, four fields. Um, Forgive me my non, not very canonical uh, juxtaposition of these four idipadas uh, that do not speak of archetypes. I do not want to blame this on the Buddha. Yeah, I don't even want to blame it on Jung, that particular spin I've put on now on this. But I think this is a useful parallel, and I think it is a useful reflection also where I go in my life. What is my preferred pattern? Maybe your preferred pattern needs a little bit of revisioning. Yeah. Maybe your preferred pattern is not the pattern that makes you awake. Maybe it doesn't even make you happy. Maybe you secretly sigh that you end up in this role, that you end up holding other people's marital problems, other people's computer problems, other people's garden shed problems. Yeah. Maybe you'd like somebody to help you with your inspiration. Or so. And you know what? There's only one person who can change that, and that is you. By acknowledging this dynamic, by paying some respect and to the skill you will have developed under particular conditions in your life, a skill that is not to be sneered at, but a skill that you want to apply consciously rather than automatically, habitually, or even compulsively. Yeah. And I think this reflection on four different types of empowerment yeah, connected with ardency, perseverance, concentration of desire, concentration of energy, concentration of mind, and concentration of investigation or discernment can be quite useful little map to look at some of the patterns in your life, how you approach things, what you have developed, but also what you have not developed, yeah? where you need help. Now that help may mean that instead of just getting the help from these people whom you call into your life, because if you've developed one of them, you will have found ways of getting at this type of energy from other people. Rather than just getting the energy, you might as well learn from them. Yeah? Rather than just being supplied with the solution, you might actually learn how to arrive at the solution. You can maybe even use the same resources. Some of these guys that you have probably called into your life to fix this, might be more than happy to tell you what they do. They may feel validated. They may feel grateful if you become finally independent, that you finally grow up. Who knows? 
and maybe you have something to offer them as well. So consider these four Edipadas as four forms of empowerment connected with different types of effort, an effort that is always in some way passionate and in the first way is connected with desire and intent and the second one it is connected with the capacity to harness mental and physical energy in the third dimension it is connected with the capacity to hold something that is running together to hold somebody deepen your stillness yeah? knowing that you don't need to bark at your mind that you don't need to pull yourself back that you don't need to label things but to know now the mind is still enough that i can trust it's running all i need is just a little bit adjustment here yeah this would be the third and finally an empowerment that comes from being able to investigate and discern when there are issues that need specific understanding good let me stop at this for tonight um, this will be my last talk. I, I'm be saying something tomorrow morning, but I'll be traveling back uh, on Sunday. And those of you who are leaving, safe travels. It's been nice practicing with you. Let's be quiet for a minute or two, and then we'll finish with some chanting. Through the goodness that arises from my practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.